Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the bewitching task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because there's witches in this, as well as Christmas, which is why this is our 2022 Christmas special. There be witches. (laughs) There be witches here in the... West Country. I can't do that accent to save my life. You will howl. Oh, God. <laughs> See, you did. See, that would have been better if it had been a werewolf story, but yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> no, that's the bar mitzvah. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> my name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally bewitching three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. Suddenly I had a joke about a silver bris knife in my head, but yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> you don't put it in your head. But... Well, no, no. Well, you do kind of, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> God, yeah, well, Christmas and all. So, of course, we're talking about... <laughs> I almost said. I almost said it's my Jewish fault. masturbation Sorry. rituals. That's all no, that no, that say. is also doing doing a breast quite <laughs> wrong, quite incorrectly, oh, and God, the bar no. mitzvah incorrectly, and Yule incorrectly, and Christmas Jewish incorrectly. Circumcision. <laughs> Thank you, circumcision. Tony, for that interfaith blender. <laughs> oh my God! And we're not even through the intro yet. Oh Lord! And we've lost our sponsors. Of course, we have none. We've lost our listenership. 
course, we have none. Okay, there's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. <laughs> Hello. Yes, and finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And is perhaps making her final appearance. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> and this time around, it's the... Wise and witty, yeah, sure, <laughs> Alison Fitch Seyfried, hello, Alison. You're the one who comes up with the adjectives. I know, and they're increasingly inaccurate. <laughs> Good God. Aww. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Good God. There you are, complaining about the quality of the panel you recruit. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, though, you'd be crazy if you did, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetPC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a disused country chapel guarded by the goddess Hecate. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton-Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com, Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We finish out 2022 with what I would normally call Christmas present, though in this case, the big old lump of coal, and that would be K9 and Company. Yes, let that sink in, won't you? Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Canine and Company, adapted by Terrence Dudley from a script that aired 12-28-81, published by Target Books in October 1987. As of this recording in December 2022, this title is out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 160 pages. As we said when winding down Tom Baker's final season, producer John Nathan Turner had approached Elizabeth Sladen about reprising her role as Sarah Jane Smith to be the companion for the Fifth Doctor briefly, but she declined. After writing K-9 out of Doctor Who, though, or asking him to be written out of Doctor Who, I should more accurately say, there had been a huge backlash from viewers, and he realized belatedly that it might be necessary to bring K-9 back in the spin-off show, if nothing else. He reasoned that K-9 couldn't headline such a show on his own, and in light of what's happened with the character since then, that turned out to be a wrong supposition as well he asked Sladen to come on board for the project, which she agreed to. Since season 19 ended up being 26 episodes, he asked for and obtained permission to use the budget for two episodes to produce a pilot episode for his show originally called Sarah and K-9, then A Girl and Her Dog, and finally K-9 and Company. The original premise was that Sarah would retire from journalism to write cookbooks. <laughs> Which shows you just how little JNT understood the character of Sarah Jane Smith. For real, God. Yes, and she would live in Aunt Lavinia's house while her aunt was in America. I could go with her at retiring to write like political potboilers or something trashy, but not cookbooks. Yeah, and in this one she's supposedly writing a book, so 
God only knows. Brendan would be a regular character. The commander would also be a regular character, showing that Terrence Dudley hadn't actually read the brief for this particular episode before writing the script, because he makes him the villain, or one of them. The first story would have been the same, mostly. There'd still be an investigation of black magic, but K-9 would have been revealed to be a trap of the Master, who, as you may remember, never met Sarah, so it makes no sense for him to try to trap her. And Brendan would have reprogrammed him before K-9 could do his evil deeds. And this is an idea that apparently the Sarah Jane Adventures eventually used, because they did do an altered version of it. It just didn't involve K-9 that time. One thing I found out when re-watching this monstrosity last night, and it actually answers a question that bothered me all throughout the reading of the book, was why exactly these witchy-poos wanted to do what they wanted to do to Aunt Lavinia. And it was over that letter. It wasn't just that she had written to the local newspaper about satanic rites or black magic being practiced in the area. It's that they were doing it on her property. Mm. Yeah, that little detail somehow gets left out of both versions. And you kind of have to infer it, given the fact that they're doing the ritual at the very end right at the manor. I thought that was pretty explicit. I, I could be wrong, but that she'd found it on her property. I, maybe not. I thought that it was clear that the chapel was on her property. Oh, no, the chapel, yeah, that part is clear. The fact that she wrote into the newspaper about those rituals being done on her property, that's the part that wasn't clear. Oh, she revealed the location? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She wrote into the paper and essentially said, hey, these bastards are killing chickens and things on my property. This sort of thing should not be happening in the 20th century. And the book doesn't make it clear that that's what she's writing in about. The book and the televised version only make it very unclearly that she's written to the local paper about black magic. And that's it. Yeah, it seems like she wrote like a satanic panic letter <laughs> yeah. to the editor. Yes. Oh, gosh. There's stuff going on that ought not be going on. They're witches. They're sacrificing children of the sort that usually does not turn out to be an accurate description of reality. Yes. And this is something that would have made sense, actually, because apparently one of the higher-ups at the BBC, when they put the script forward, essentially said, let's see if we can emphasize the mystery aspects rather than the black magic aspects, because... <laughs> Such scenes, when they go out on the BBC, get interesting reactions. The implication being that there were witches in the BBC, mm. which makes sense. That would have helped, too, with kind of understanding why Tracy had it out for them. Yes. Well, well okay. Mm -hmm. So I thought that you were saying that they didn't want to put something like that on air because it would inspire maybe an actual satanic panic where people thought that their neighbors were out making sacrifices to various deities in the woods. But you're saying <laughs> the concern was there was a lot of witchcraft being practiced by the staff of the BBC? I'm saying both. Okay. Yes, and. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, and. There we go. J&T ran into a problem when the head of drama at the BBC was replaced by somebody who was not as enamored of this project as his predecessor had been, and the original allowance of a 90-minute pilot was cut back to 50 minutes. So imagine this being longer. 
He had some luck getting Terrence Dudley, who'd been a writer, director, and producer on such shows as Doomwatch, Survivors, and even the episode Megloss for Doctor Who, he actually directed that episode, to do the writing for this. But Dudley and the new script editor Eric Sayward butted heads throughout the process, because any time Eric Sayward tried to suggest a change, Dudley wasn't having any of it. Hmm. And... You can kind of see it in this book, because this book has all of the ideas that were cut from the original script that Sayward thought were bad ideas, which might explain a lot. But which part? Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. I was going to say, will you let us know? I will. (laughs) We'll get there. The theme music... I just realized I need to play you the theme music. The theme music was composed by self-proclaimed superfan Ian Levine, who had become the de facto continuity advisor for John Nathan Turner going into the new era of the show, and who was also a music producer. The resulting theme is, well, tell you what, I'll show you the opening, because, my God, it is something to see. All right, cover your ears for a second, because this may be a bit loud initially. Oh, he extended it. I'm surprised that's what made you laugh. <laughs> Remember, I haven't actually watched episodes with K9 in them, so I didn't know that he had all these different appendages. Oh, yeah, that's his gun turret. All these Yes. The idea from the director was that the opening should look like heart to heart. Which it kind of does if you squint very heavily. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I've uh, seen worse. Yes, we've all seen worse. But I've seen better. Yes, we've seen a lot oh. better. So did that air with the episode? Oh, yes, it did. Because of Slayton's working schedule on Gulliver in Lilliput which she was doing for Barry Letts at the time, the pilot couldn't be filmed until November. The original intention was to show the pilot during Christmas week, but the date was pushed back a week under short notice. On top of that, there was a transmission outage in the northwest of England that night, so many people didn't get to see it. Despite all that, it got something like 8.4 million viewers, which was actually better than any episode of Doctor Who in season 18 had gotten. And despite all of that, the new head of the BBC wasn't thrilled with it, so the idea was abandoned. They didn't go to series, and were probably better off for it to some degree. Mm-hmm. A couple of casting notes that I didn't include in the original notes. Peter Tracy was played by Sean Chapman, who I didn't know until last night went on to play Frank in the first two Hellraiser movies. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised to see that, and I think the reason why is because he's dubbed in both of those movies with an American actor, so I did not recognize his face at all, but that's him. Interesting. And Brendan was played by Ian Sears, who went on to be in the movies Yentl 
and the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover before he decided to leave acting. He now lives in Los Angeles, where he works as an um, editor for television. He worked on Penn & Teller's Bullshit, among other things. So some of the cast has gone on to bigger and better things. Liz Sladen definitely did. She would return with K-9 in The Five Doctors in 1983, but it wasn't until they reappeared in the 2006 episode School Reunion that the idea of giving Sarah a spinoff again came up. This time because K-9's co-creator Bob Baker was working on doing an independent series in Australia, which eventually and very briefly did get made, the show would mostly feature Sarah on her own, and it would be geared at kids specifically. The Sarah Jane Adventures ran from 2007 to 2011, ending only due to the death of Sladen due to cancer at the age of 65. So, who wants to read this glorious back cover? K-9. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably going to play underneath it, just so you know. I can read it. I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> okay. Thank you for taking the bullet on this occasion. Thank you for falling on that sword. In the sleepy village of Hazelberry Abbas, the winter solstice is fast drawing near. It is a time of deep mystery and ancient evil. Sarah Jane Smith, journalist and former companion to the doctor, comes to Hazelberry Abbas to start work on her new book. While there, she meets Brendan, the young ward of her aunt Lavinia. Suddenly, Brendan disappears. Has he been kidnapped by the practitioners of black magic who were said to live in the village? Is he to be sacrificed to the goddess Hecate on the winter solstice? But Sarah is not alone in her search for Brendan. Across the unimaginable gulfs of time and space, the doctor has sent her a very special companion, a robotic dog by the name of K-9. <laughs> You're going to keep doing that, aren't you? Yeah. It gets in your head, doesn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> They're going to have to operate it in your head. Yeah. yeah, the little featurette that they did on the Blu-ray set that has Canine Company in it about Ian Sears was called Brendan and Company, and his name gets repeated again and again like that. And it's just like, oh, why did you have to do this? Otherwise, it's quite charming, but yeah, so first impressions. Dalton, what was your first impression upon seeing the lovely, silvery, shiny canine in a way that we've never seen him before on the cover of this book? Well, having just lost him so recently, I was kind of looking forward to it. But then once I started reading it, he's not in a lot of it. No. And I thought that the title definitely was misleading in that. Yeah. This was bringing up memories of Stones of Blood, of the demons. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of the other kind of spooky small town witch stories that we've read. And as I was reading it, too, it was reminding me of Hot Fuzz. Yes. <laughs> the way that everyone in the town seems to be having a part in this. Lots of weird feelings. but It would not surprise me if this directly influenced Hot Fuzz. Yeah. Because Simon Pegg is a longtime Doctor Who fan. Yeah. I haven't seen Hot Fuzz with everybody into the occult in Hot Fuzz. Yes. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. Spoiler yeah, alert. that's that's the reveal. <laughs> I have had like 15 or 20 years to see it, so I have no one to blame but myself. 
Yeah. yeah, and it's based on things exactly like this. And oh my god. If you've seen Hot Fuzz, then you've seen a much better and much more entertaining version of Canine and Company minus the robot dog. Yeah. And everybody else. Uh, <laughs> Allison, what was your first impression? Well, visually, this grid pattern, the sort of late 70s through mid 80s grid pattern, was you know, a design trend for a while that sometimes you just the grid and sometimes you would see it you know warped in different parabolic shapes and whatnot but locally it survives in the environment almost exclusively in the west lawrence byron's hot dog sign oh yes so, <laughs> design wise it was kind of an interesting early 80s throwback and i guess i had a little teehee over oh it's the wrong terrence d <laughs> and then i started reading it I'm like oh my gosh this is the most pretentious thing I have ever read. Oh, yes. What it reminded me of was a book I had studying for the SAT that was a book specifically to study vocabulary for the SAT. It was in the form of a novel, but you know the cover was something like over 1,200 vocabulary study words. And the idea is you read them in context. This is when you would look them up not on a computer but with a paper dictionary next to you and you'd retain the words better. And this seemed like the prologue was a study aid for students studying for a vocabulary test or just a 16-year-old with an excellent vocabulary being very pretentious, thinking that's what was meant by sophisticated writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I nearly did not survive the prologue, which I guess is only two and a half pages, but seemed to go on for years. That's mm -hmm. the whole book. <laughs> yes. Yes, civilizations rose and fell during mm -hmm. the writing of this book. It got better? Yeah. Oh. Okay. This is what I did not expect. So my first opinion was, <laughs> oh, God. Maybe I could fake my own death before we, <laughs> before we record so I don't have to actually read this. Maybe I could turn myself in for a crime I didn't commit or go commit an interesting one to get out of the social obligation <laughs> of reading the rest of this book. But then the, uh, the next chapter, Exit at Lavinia, was kind of amusing this little social passive aggressions comedy of manners and then enter sarah jane and then it was actually fun because sarah jane is a complete dick for oh yes but in a way that's self-aware and entertaining and then so is <laughs> brendan and so i actually enjoyed a lot of the sarah jane and brendan content oh okay in a way i did not expect to <laughs> going back to first impressions i wasn't sure if they were going to bring K9 back from eSpace or there was another K9 model. I did not remember. I, I, I actually did not understand how K9 was sent into the story, having been mailed by the doctor three years earlier. I never <laughs> got that, and that could be my fault. Didn't he used to have legs also? No. Okay. The doctor has a time machine. Yes. So <laughs> he could have left it in that apartment in Croydon at any time, really. But is it the same canine who's off in East Space with Ramon? No, 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 no. It's canine Mark Three. Okay, that's that was my confusion. I wasn't sure which canine it was. So he built a new one. Okay. Yes. So this is a canine that has not been seen before. Yes. Technically, yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and when we get to school reunion, that's the one that's in a state of disrepair. And then when he gets blown up, the doctor runs up a new one, and you get canine Mark Four. So, yes, there eventually needs to be a story called the Three Canines, because there are now three canines. <laughs> it's supposed to be a spinoff partly st 
starring K-9, but then it's a completely different character. Yes. Or a different K-9. It's a different K-9. I mean, it's still our Is it K-9 who doesn't have the memory of all the experiences with the Doctor and Romana? I have a feeling that the Doctor would not have included those. I just have this feeling. I don't know, especially since when we meet her in school reunion, Sarah Jane doesn't know what's happened to the Doctor after he left. All she knows is that he sent her canine, and that's it. He never came back for her, and she's very bitter about it, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. I tend to think of this version as almost like an alternate continuity to some degree, because the Sarah Jane that we see in this one seems to have gone on with her life after the Doctor left her. The Sarah Jane that we see in School Reunion, despite having K-9, obviously never did. It's like, okay. Oh, Okay, did things just get worse for her as time went on, or what? Did she get depressed that they didn't go to series, or something like that? Because <laughs> heaven knows, we want to spend more time with Brendan. Actually, that's unfair of me. Brendan is not annoying on the same level as Adric is. On the page, Brendan is actually my favorite teen that we have seen since Vicky. Really? Yes. So there was a time in my life when I was underemployed and I watched daytime soap operas and I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And the early teens, like the the kids who are too young to have romantic stories about them, are the most incipient adult fantasies imaginable. Yes. Of what a good kid would be. Like they speak in a way that's completely unlike any human ever speaks. I mean, I know, look who's talking here. But, you know, they're just, you know how in a family portrait, you'll often have a child who has their hair combed in a way that their parents have never been able to wrestle them into before or since their hair and their clothing? Yes. That, that's what young teens are often portrayed as mm-hmm. in media that is not specifically aimed at young teens. And if this is aimed at young teens, then once again, it must be it's supposed to be a vocabulary building exercise. I thought that the way that he behaved was actually much more naturally kind of annoying, but in a well-intentioned, immature way like Vicky was, as opposed to either the bad seed or some kind of perfect fantasy of what a good kid would be from an adult's perspective. Yeah, and I could see that, especially since on the page, he's meant to be his original age, which is 14, Mm -hmm. whereas in the televised version... He's been aged up to 16, but he's played by an 18-year-old. So, yeah, a lot of his behaviors make a lot of sense for a 14-year-old. Maybe even for a 16-year-old. For an 18-year-old, not unless it's an 18-year-old who's trying to stay precocious, which is one word that I'm surprised we didn't see in this book, (laughs) given that we saw Okris and Penumbris and Anomalous all in the same chapter. It felt like in the prologue, it was designed for the writer to show off, like I said, well, like an actual real life annoying 16 year old to show off his or her vocabulary. But also, like, if you know all the words, you realize how unnecessary they are. Like, if I had not known the $10 words, I might have thought, wow, he's just so sophisticated um, in his prose. I I would be getting so much more if I knew all these words. Like, that's kind of a weird word to use there and certainly unnecessary what's the old joke never use a long word when a diminutive one will do (laughs) yes so it's not adding anything here yeah the writer mostly lays off of that after the prologue of the first chapter okay so it improves for you um (laughs) dalton did did it improve for you (laughs) 
again, like Allison said, the prologue is two and a half pages and it felt like forever. That was the whole book for me. It just felt like it went on and on and on. So much phone tag. Oh, so many phone calls. And so much <laughs> running around back and forth. You don't have corridors, but we have dark, <laughs> spooky Hamlet streets. That well, there's a driveway to run in. That's new. Right. <laughs> yeah, gravel yes. to make noise on. And Sarah Jane being a race car driver. And I do agree that Brendan didn't annoy me as much as I was expecting him to. Mm-hmm. He did feel kind of appropriately of the age that he was supposed to be, the way he was reacting and kind of his excitement towards K-9 and even his relationship with K-9 with kind of standoffish in a way. Yeah, it's weirdly adversarial for a lot of the book. <laughs> yeah. But again, like that's kind of that 14-year-old testing limits and seeing how much someone knows. And then if they do know more than you, then trying to find a way to still puff your chest out and make yourself better than them. Mm -hmm. So it's not the worst thing, but I definitely felt overly long for what is here and learning that it was only a 50 minute episode instead (laughs) of a 90 minute, whatever it was going to be. It definitely reading it felt like it was like a four to six part something (laughs) as opposed to what was actually shown on screen, which is only Two parts. Yeah. I apologize to whichever writers I previously accused of being paid by the word for these adaptations. <laughs> Nothing compares to this one for being paid by the word. I know. I was astounded when I picked up my print copy to find out what the uh, page count was and saw that it was 160. I was like, you're kidding me. I know that the Companions of Doctor Who range, of which there are only three books, this is the third one, and then they decided these aren't selling well, let's stop. They don't have to be at that sweet spot of 126 pages, but they really should be because 160, I think what we're reading, Dalton, is actually a novelization of Terrence Dudley's uncut script, mm-hmm. going back to the Briss thing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> instead of the circumcised version that we got on screen. We're reading a lot more than the tip here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there's more than just the tip, that's for sure. We're getting the There's whole hog. Geyser. Oh, God. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I, I probably... <laughs> we edit this out? <laughs> Not a sausage. Nope. nope. Uh-uh. We're playing up that 14-year-old role. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Uh... I wasn't bringing Brendan into it. Jesus, God, no. <laughs> well, I'm but... just saying we're being immature like Brendan is. We are being immature, which is what people pay us for, I think. But Brendan's first thought about K-9 was what a wonderful toy, what a wonderful thing to explore. And a second thought was, I can use this to do all my homework. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when he actually has a task, he thinks, this will be easy. All I have to do is search horticulture. Yeah. <laughs> and that will be containable. And I actually thought there was a pretty good forecast here of how we do use technology now, handheld technology. Mm-hmm. True. A 14-year-old thinks, you know, oh, I need to know things about horticulture. So give me all the results on horticulture, and I'll be an expert in no time. Oh, search parameters. And (laughs) canines used to surreptitiously record conversations and to navigate in an unfamiliar area. So it actually aged pretty well in terms of canines' usage, if not his corporeal form. 
Oh, that's right, because she uses them as a GPS, doesn't she? Yeah, when she has the other driver. I was sure that driver was going to turn out to be... We don't know until the end if the High Priestess is going to be Mrs. Gregg or Miss Juno. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be one of them who was the driver. Because yeah. earlier, we have Sarah Jane with a little internalized misogyny. Of, oh, woman drivers. And the driver turns out <laughs> yes. to be a bearded man with long hair. She misidentified. And as she is driving away from the maniac who is chasing her, she initially thought it was some guy kind of showing off and hot rodding. Mm -hmm. And she thinks about what a chauvinist this person is. <laughs> I thought it was going to turn out to be one of the older women that we met earlier, ah. which would have been much funnier, but it was just some guy. Neither of those two scenes occurs in the televised version. They were written for the televised version, but they were cut. The scene where Sarah Jane is cut off by what she thinks is a woman and she's being chauvinistic herself, that actually was filmed, but it was cut for time. Whereas the chase sequence, I'm not even sure that ever got filmed. The closest we get is a tractor coming out and almost hitting her and her having to dodge off the road to get away from it. That's all we get. It was fairly entertaining for a written car chase. It's hard to make that engaging on the page. It probably would have made the televised story more engaging if we'd had it, but we didn't. You know, I often say that the episode of my head has horrific production values. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that it doesn't, but, you know, the, <laughs> this one, I assumed everything looked horrible. <laughs> I assumed it was one of the worst episodes ever filmed. I assumed it was much better on the page. Well, here's the thing. It actually looks pretty good because there aren't any science fiction-y sets. You have the manor house, even though, as Liz Sladen points out again and again and again on the commentary track, all of it is shot as if it were a stage play. Mm. That's where it really doesn't look all that great. But the sets are great. The exteriors are fine. The location work is fine until you realize that poor Ian Sears is having to be almost completely naked. Not completely naked as he is in the book, but almost completely naked on a very cold night in November. Poor thing. Mm. But yeah, mostly it looks fine, especially upgraded to Blu-ray because so much of it was shot on film. So the film sequences look really good. I assumed that the rituals look particularly stupid. No. And silly. No, they actually had some decent goat masks. <laughs> How does hair look obscene? How does hair look obscene? I have no idea. Yeah, we're told a couple of times the hair is obscene. I'm still trying to figure out how slender female arms are anomalous. <laughs> I, I guess it was seen to be anomalous. They were female arms, but... Uh... If you're a practitioner and a devotee of Hecate, how would that be anomalous? I think that's where I'm stuck. Actual Hecate worship is done by anybody of any gender. In fact... She is one of those goddesses who is a bit kinder to people who are genderqueer, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. I'd have to ask Danny about that, but I was asking him questions all throughout this, and it turns out that a lot of what Dudley writes on the page about Hecate and goddess worship is somewhat accurate, apart from the fact that they're being presented as, you know, bad guys. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a mashup, isn't it? Because they talk about Hecate, but also the Astaroth, which yep. is ancient Near Eastern fertility, and who else? I'm looking for this passage. Because it's 
quite the civilization spanning list that they give. I read that entire list name by name off to Danny. And by the way, listeners, you may not actually know this, but my roommate Danny, who's occasionally been on the podcast, is Wiccan. And Hecate is one of the deities he works with. And I read him off all of those. And he's like, oh, yeah. Okay, that would make sense. Yeah, it's from a different tradition. But yeah, it's pretty much the same. That list does not get read off on screen. There's a single name, and that single name isn't even a god. So it is a bit of a hodgepodge. Some of it actually works, I guess, but it does make out any worshipper of Hecate to be a human sacrificing bad person. And I can't figure out why they decided to go this route anyway, because was it just because Lavinia wrote to the paper and exposed them? Because it seems like it's a pretty major open secret, since the publisher of the paper was part of the coven. Well, and they say that they haven't made a human sacrifice since, like, the late 1700s. Yeah, it's been, like, 200 years. Yeah. And then we are told that there have been, like, three bad years in a row, but is this really the first time in about 250 years that there have been three bad years in a row for the cabbages? I imagine not, especially with the pH values being all over the place as they are, which we get a <laughs> page and a half about. I actually did like that scene where Brendan thinks that he's being clever and pretending that he can smell the pH. <laughs> and, but he thinks that he is really showing off here his knowledge. There is this, this poignant bit about sort of the class background of the situation that the guy who's actually the sort of hereditary heir to the position of farmer and perhaps in previous centuries serf on this land. Mm -hmm. The family doesn't own the land, but they're the ones who know it very well. And he does actually have a modern scientific understanding of it as well. But that was actually a kind of a nice little humanizing scene for him because otherwise yes. he's just evil. You have to wonder why they pulled the trigger on human sacrifice when they did because they seem to have just chosen brendan because he happened to be in the house or i thought it was because he was the nephew of lavinia but is it a revenge on her for talking about the religion i or... guess though if that's the case they could have taken sarah too because she's the niece of aunt lavinia but he's not even a blood relation to lavinia right he's a ward well that's just it i don't know because or maybe he is the book doesn't make that clear the televised version Why doesn't... now and why Brendan, yeah, did not seem clear to me if they have done this before, but it's been such a very long time. They needed a virgin sacrifice. Oh, maybe that's it. But that's never stated. I'm just assuming. <laughs> I'm betting. You're but... making assumptions about Brendan and Sarah Jane. Oh, well, no, oh. we know it about Brendan. I'm fairly certain <laughs> Sarah Jane has managed to fit that in at some point during her, her travels <laughs> yes yeah, or what have you yeah explorations exactly <laughs> something had to have happened but they have another kid there they have another teenage boy oh yeah peter and at one point i thought that they're going to imply that if brendan didn't work out they would just go with uh peter peter yeah I was afraid Peter's dad was going to turn out to be the doctor because now every time a man is described as having dark hair, I assume it will turn out to be the doctor. <laughs> I'm sorry, not the doctor, the master. The master, yeah. Fortunately, someone practiced a little self-restraint there by not having another, oh, aha, it's the master moment. It probably would have been. Well, no, I don't think the master was ever going to appear in this one. 
it was just going to be revealed that he was gunning for Sarah for some God only knows reason. Or Hecate only knows reason. (laughs) Dear Lord. I think you're right, though, Dalton. I think it's the virgin sacrifice bit. Yeah, it's kind of implied, but it's never stated explicitly. This book has enough little winking moments in it that I don't think that would have been considered inappropriate content if that were the idea to just put it in. Yeah, it's also 1987, and we have read Target books from around that date range that do have references to adult situations and such. So it wouldn't have been out of place. I'm not sure we're missing something. I I don't think it's there. I could be wrong. Because even when they talk about the 13-second hailstorm that destroyed the fruit crop, Mm -hmm. wasn't it years before? They said it was like recently. It was like the year before... Okay. It was a recent occurrence. It's odd because one of the things they pointed out that I actually kind of like for context is it's historically this agricultural area, but the villagers don't want the new street lights, partly because they find them ugly, but partly because it's not good for the tourism industry. Yeah. So it seemed kind of weird to me that there is a level of desperation for human sacrifice because of these agricultural problems in the last few years when they have sort of modern social safety net and a tourism industry and these other things, but that never came up in like the 19th century. Yeah. If this had been more akin to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, where they were just so used to doing these rituals for, you know, centuries, even millennia, that... They just couldn't get out of the habit, despite... Or they're afraid that if they stop, all is lost. Yeah. If that had been played up a bit more, I probably would have bought... Well, I don't think I would have bought it even then. But I would have bought it more than I do now. Right now, it just seems like, oh, she wrote a nasty email to the newspaper about us, and she revealed us to everybody, even though we are already known to everybody let's kill somebody in her family while she's away in america also the editor didn't have to publish it yes <laughs> like if the editor is one of the widgets i did like that for first time i hasn't seen the episode we have repeated three or four times it's annoying but it's helpful the phrase she had no way of oh. knowing that she was talking to a witch who had been at the esbot the esbot that one i did not know that term but it, well, on the one hand, it was annoying, but on the other hand, I wasn't going to remember all the names that were described on the first page and the prologue either. You could have made a drinking game out of that, though, yeah. with how often he says it. I kept waiting for some kind of sort of internal logic reveal about why now, when we had presented to us that the editor who published this letter, the Satanic Panic letter, was indeed someone to panic about. Yes. (laughs) Was actually practicing witchcraft and was a person who had human sacrifice in his set of options and possibilities should the the need arise. Precisely, and I don't get it. I kept expecting to find out how this was some kind of controlled escalation to do what? Except it's not. Yeah, I expected some kind of explanation that whether it was good or bad would exist and we didn't quite get around to there. No. And it takes out any sort of suspense that there might have been in this book, not only to say, oh, Sarah could not have known that she was 
face to face with a witch. It's like, okay, okay, we get it, we get it. But also, you pretty much know from the start that Lavinia is perfectly fine. Because we get that scene with her at the beginning saying, oh, I'm having to leave early. It's like, okay. <laughs> so why is Sarah so concerned when she can't find her there when like five different people know that she was leaving early? It would have made more sense if we didn't know that she got called away early. And then Sarah Jane comes and can't find her aunt. And then it's like, oh, yeah. shit, where's she at? I can't get in contact with her. But that whole first scene, yeah, it, it creates this sense of security that, no, she's fine. She's just can't be contacted. Yeah, because cell phones don't exist yet. I wasn't sure that was going to be the case because we know that she has been asked to come early. So then she's just gone. So I thought, thought there was a bit of a question the entire book about whether or not she had genuinely been asked to come early or if she had disappeared. Got it. Okay. But then she turned out to be fine at the end. Yeah. I thought there was a little bit of suspense about whether or not the commander would turn out to be evil or not, and he did. But whether the priestess would be Lily or Juno, I thought they might go with a little more kind of small town social humor with Juno and who is Mr. Juno. Uh, Mr. Juno. Howard. 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 Talk about how they're new in town. They've only been there a few years. I thought it might turn out to be some sort of social climbing on their part that they really want to fit in it's like joining the rotary or the dar <laughs> they they join the coven yeah. and they get super into it and they're like well, we should do a sacrifice but we didn't have anything <laughs> quite that amusing about the social dynamics of social climbers yeah there's very little that's amusing in this book to be honest disagree i, I actually found it much more amusing than i thought because the first chapter I wanted to hang myself. Sorry. Or the prologue. So afterwards, I actually found several things amusing because my expectations were so low. <laughs> okay, maybe that's it then. I think I probably didn't care much for it simply because I've watched the story and I know what's coming and I have never pushed through this book ever for just that reason. And now that I have, I'm glad it's behind me because I never want to do it again. Sarah Jane just seems so timid compared to how we have seen her in the past. Yes, and very adversarial, much more so than we've ever seen before. As a matter of fact, that's a problem with the script that Liz Sladen had. She's seen crying and, and being so just like distraught about what is going on all this time. And I don't ever remember her being like that. I don't ever remember her being completely torn down to, to like tears about something. That's entirely new. And it was done specifically because, and I kid you not, John Nathan Turner's original idea for this series was it to be more in the vein of the Avengers from the 60s. I could say that. And so Sarah Jane would have become a black belt in karate, as she's described to be in the book. Now, you could probably see her doing that because after meeting, you know, Daleks, Cybermen, and Zygons, she wants to be able to defend herself from the human monsters that actually inhabit the planet she lives on. I could absolutely see that. It's another thing entirely when you watch the televised version and you see Sarah actually break out these karate moves. 
which Liz Slayton described as having had like five minutes of instruction to do what's essentially a dance move. It's embarrassing. Yeah, you showing us the opening credits makes all of that make sense. Seeing her be this like action star, because that is totally what the credits are cut to be like. It's like freaking Miami Vice or something. Just like, this is Sarah Jane action and her robot dog companion. (laughs) So why call it K-9? This is what I don't get with the mismatch because K-9 seems like it would be something that is geared towards children who want to see a robot dog. Yes. So if you want to see lady journalist and martial artist kicking ass and taking names, you're not going to expect to find that in the robot dog show. And if you're a child who wants to see the robot dog, you're like, Who's this adult woman who goes around yelling at people and driving crazy? Like, it, there seems to be a mismatch between the advertising and the who is actually the star of the story. Yeah, there absolutely is. So it kind of makes sense that it took, what, 40 years for them to get the concept right and actually get a series featuring Sarah and occasionally Canine that worked and would appeal to children. Because the Sarah Jane Adventures, I can guarantee you, except for the few times the Doctor appears in it, it is not made for adults. Mm. And you cannot enjoy it as an... Well, I say you cannot enjoy it. I know I'm going to get emails over that one. Well, no, I know what you're saying. It's a children's program. That's. I mean, I haven't seen it, but adults can enjoy children's programs. But it's not the same as all ages. Yes, Exactly. Doctor Who, as it's made now, is supposed to be all ages. Doctor Who, as it was made then, was considered to be all ages. Sarah Jane Adventures was never all ages. It's very much a children's program. You have different expectations. Yeah. They're kind of odd developments to the character. I mean, I think it's fine if you have a character who's been out of the story for a while and they come back with new skills, etc. But it's a weird beat for a kid show. Yeah, yeah, it is. Like, sorry, talk about heart to heart, Miami Vice. These are not children's classics. Well, as was pointed out in the commentary track, it would be a very difficult show to take to series because think about it: all the times that she has to hide Canine away because she'd have to explain him, she is never going to be able to reveal Canine's existence to anybody. So. He is always either going to be in her carry-all, which must be enormous, by the way, (laughs) or in the back of her car, or hidden away in the manor. Because you can't take him down the high street. You can't take him on the bus. You can't take him on a plane. You can't show him off to people. And even when she shows up in school reunion and he's in a state of disrepair, she says, well, I thought about getting him repaired, but I realized the technology inside him could change the development of humankind forever, and that would be a bad thing to do in the timeline. And she's not wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how would you make that work? And not a lot of thought went into that. I mean, it's an era where you could still get away with that sort of tired premise of no one knows that Clark Kent is Superman. I mean, we can, you can have the premise that it's so frustrating to a modern audience that you have years of a program wherein no one knows about a secret identity or the existence of the space alien or the robot dog or something like that. But it's still just a weird tone mix. It reminds me of when there was a traveling show a few years ago of Dora the Explorer. Oh, and 
the ads were an adult woman is Dora. Oh, Lord. And it just actually seemed kind of weird. Like, it wasn't, like, inappropriately sexy or something, but Dora is a child. And I think later they did do a show where Dora was in, it was like a costume, like a plush Dora or something, if you will. Not an actual right. child because there are child labor laws, but someone who actually had the proportions of Dora. Mm-hmm. There needs to be more canine or do a show starring Sarah. It's just a weird tonal match. Yeah. And I think that's what they finally figured out 40 years later. Especially since Canine was off doing his own series. And it's very different, that show. For one thing, it's in an alternate universe. And for another, it's in a dystopian England. So it makes sense that he's wishing around all over the place. Because in that version, he can also fly. So it's very different. Well, can you imagine giving a 10-year-old this book? No. Yeah. How frustrated they'd be. Oh, yeah. Even if they were interested in the story, how frustrated they would be with the density of the language. I couldn't imagine giving this to a 52-year-old and knowing how frustrated they'd be with this book. <laughs> well, it's, it's not accessible to children and not because of the sophistication of the concepts. Mm -hmm. But just like I said, it seems like someone who's just kind of showing off. Yeah. I wouldn't say it pays off exactly. So no. obviously a show has aired that shows, of course you can do a show for kids starring Sarah Jane, but this tone isn't it. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Not at all. You could totally do an Avengers style show with this character. This just isn't it. It could be done. The problem is that setting, now that they've broken up the coven, what else is there to do in the West Country? I mean, they could move. Well, I would hope they would, because... Yeah, that opening sequence, all the locations are there. They're in the countryside. She is doing her slow jog down one of those roads that's only been paved for the last 20 years or so. I mean, I guess she would go on assignment and have adventures and then come home. I don't know. I suppose so. See Brendan twice a year. I don't know. I guess, except supposedly he's going to be the series regular and is going to be there. Maybe he's supposed to be the damsel in distress that she has to rescue every three episodes. I don't know. And not, not a lot of it makes sense past this one episode. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. And you really have to wonder what the quote-unquote real-world Sarah Jane ended up doing with K-9 after all of this, because we do see him in The Five Doctors. Well, Briefly, very, very briefly, as if to remind us, hey, this got made. In fact, those of us, <laughs> those of us watching The Five Doctors for the first time in 1983, who were not aware of the existence of K9 and Company, were flabbergasted to see K9 trundling out after her. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, why is K9 with her? What's going on there? What the hell? What's wrong? This can't be real life, can it? Oh my god. I finally had to have a friend who knew a little bit more about the show than I did at that point say, oh no, no, they did a Christmas special a few years back with them. And I was like, really? Why haven't we seen it? Oh, it probably wasn't included for syndication. There's a very good reason why it wasn't included for syndications, because no one would buy the damn thing. As it was, I didn't hear the theme song until I was in grad school in 1992, because someone actually had the 45 of it. God, why? 
Because he was a Doctor Who fan. Because he's a collector, yeah. <laughs> Unusual item to have a commercial release. Uh. Yeah, so I asked him to play it for me, and he was like, oh god, really? And I was like, what's wrong? And he said, you'll hear. And sure enough, I did. It'll ruin the mood. <laughs> it kind of did, actually. <laughs> well, no, I don't think it did come to think of it, but. It was a very nice night, and I'm very happy that he played it for me, but I remember that happening in his dorm room. And I didn't see the actual episode until it got released on VHS in the late 90s, and by that point, when I finally saw it, I was like, dear God, really? What were they thinking? So, not exactly a Christmas treat, that's for sure. (laughs) The other clever lines, like, perhaps hell was like this, telling the truth to people who couldn't believe you. Yeah. I was amused by, I don't know if it was supposed to be meta humor or not, but the idea that doing an in-person survey of all the historic church sites within five miles <laughs> actually would take a while. So after this big car change, <laughs> get out the map again. All right, let's go to this one. Although what is or is not supposed to be going on paranormally and supernaturally in this story I thought for the entire story that they were cultists, but we weren't going to see any actual goddesses or lords of darkness or anyone. We were just going to see small town pagans who weren't actually accomplishing anything but murder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then Sarah seems to take the threat of an archbishop's body to the coven very seriously. Archbishop. Well, it was an archbishop who was buried at one of the sites. Oh, oh, T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot. Well, T.S. Eliot at one of them, but then some, I thought it was an archbishop. I don't know my C of E rank. No, there was some senior church official at the next place as well. Oh, okay. Who she also thinks would preclude satanic activity in the area. Because those places would be too busy. Yeah. No, I thought she was saying that they wouldn't be carrying on any rituals around T.S. Eliot because he was too important a Christian? Yeah, something like that. I didn't think it was foot traffic because these were like celebrity graves or sites of pilgrimage. I thought it was like T.S. Eliot and this bishop and his wife were too spiritually powerful for the witches to be able to function in the area. Was the suggestion? Or was it just that the coven was superstitious and they wouldn't select those areas? I think it's more the latter. Or it could be the foot traffic thing too. Because I, I took I took it more as that these were places that there would be too many people around. That's what I'm thinking too. That if anybody saw activity at one of these things, there would be a very public uproar. Whereas this coven is looking for some place secluded to do it. All right, let's see here. Sorry, canine, to erase to forget about that. East Coker's where T. S. Eliot is buried. A great poet and a man of the church. No witch would dare to go near there, I'm sure. Okay, so it's the witches she thinks would not select this. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I honestly don't know. And I equally don't care because, my God, this story... Okay, here we go. Yes, go ahead. Carved in a flat stone level with the surrounding grass was the inscription, Geoffrey Francis Fisher, 99th Archbishop of Canterbury, and Rosamund, his wife. And let's see here. No coven could flourish its evil here. Okay. That surprised me because it seemed like she actually believed in the sort of magical power of deceased churchmen. I guess. I know that later on she does go into one of the churches and prays, which also doesn't happen on screen because Sarah Jane has never been presented as being even in the least bit religious. 
but prayer is a much more common practice than like it's not like a standard christian doctrine that the body of an archbishop is going to repel witchcraft in the region <laughs> no no in fact i would have appreciated the story more had there actually been a supernatural element but that's something that the bbc the higher-ups were very very insistent not be in the story that's why this seemed weird to me and i wondered if it was one of the things that the writer put back in because I would have expected no supernatural or paranormal content or a lot more than this. So this tinge of it seemed odd. Yeah, it does. Especially since we do have that policeman having a heart attack when he sees a goat. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh... A very ugly goat. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. on screen they show the goat and you think, oh, well, that's meant to be proof that it's not something supernatural, that he has had a heart attack because he was terrified. But it's like, wouldn't it have made more sense for him actually to have been struck down by satanic forces, even though those satanic forces don't do a damn thing throughout the rest of the whole fucking thing? <laughs> I was going to say struck down by the ghost. <laughs> well, really yeah, I mean... Ghost. <laughs> Knowing the the what goats do generally, he could have been bopped in the googlies by it and suffered some sort of heart attack from the pain. But it does say that the bleeding reached demonic proportions. <laughs> so I just I, I just I find it hard to believe that small town person who's lived here his entire life doesn't know how to deal with a goat. <laughs> yeah, even late at night, especially a police officer. I, I thought it was implied there was something supernatural going on, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, and there isn't, and it would have been a better story if there had been, but no, of course not. Oh, God. Well, you said you were going to point out the parts that were left out of the episode and then put back into the novelization. Oh, everything. The chase sequence... Sarah blessing out the other driver at the very beginning. Most of the sequences that you have in the book that have her driving and talking with Brendan are actually done outside the car because no one thought to ask Liz Sladen if she was comfortable doing scenes driving and talking, which she was not. So there's a lot of that. That whole thing about you'll never make it to... Bidchester or wherever the hell it is that the uh, constable is going to. That whole red herring is taken out of the shooting script. So you don't see Sarah going to all of these different places and checking them out. Anything that reads as filler in this book is essentially taken out. Well, that would be all of it reads as filler. Yeah, that's the thing. There's a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of it. Actually, I hadn't thought of it in those terms before, but very little of it reads as core story no, or core plot. There hmm. are some parts that read as, I thought, pretty good character development, mm-hmm. but not really core plot. Like, nothing ever feels important. Mm-mm. Yeah, and there's a lot more interaction between Sarah and Brendan, and a lot more interaction between Brendan and K-9, which is... Not that adversarial ever on screen. And Sarah and Brendan are a lot more adversarial on screen, come to think of it. So that's essentially it. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) It's very 80s in that now there are more action heroines, but they are still being written in a combination of damsel in distress and invincible. 
Mm-hmm. It's very characteristic of the era. Yeah. That sort of transition between the more traditional portrayals of the damsel in distress and then the newer acceptability of action heroines as mainstream and career women as leads. But you almost always get very weird mixes with those characters on screen in the 80s. Yeah. You, you get a weird mix that speak more of an internal consistent on the level of hospitalization for mental illness <laughs> in terms of the characteristics you seem to see in the same character. Yeah. So there are actually some moments in here that I very much enjoyed. Like I actually like that she was kind of a jerk. She's definitely a menace to public safety <laughs> when driving in a yes. way that seemed not idealized, but <laughs> reminded me of when I used to drive more aggressively. And then she is a screamer in parts of this as well. Yeah. So sort of weird mix. Mm-hmm. And she isn't in the televised version, which is just strange. It could possibly have worked, maybe, if they'd made her more in the vein of, say, Jamie Summers from The Bionic Woman, and less what they did do to her. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it took 40 years for them to get it right, but yeah. Anything else you want to say about this before going to Goodreads? I enjoyed the scene with Wilson and Tracy where Wilson is kind of having a crisis of faith, I guess, maybe. Mm -hmm. Being pulled between being a public servant as a police officer and then being part of this coven. There was a line that says, The occult was the only true communion, and yet there were those of his faith who clung tenaciously to primitive extremes, repudiating the liberalizing influence of the civil law, just as those of the Christian faith clung fervently to the practice of ritual cannibalism. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I would have liked more of that. That was amazing to read. I was like, wow, that's pretty cutting. Yeah. <laughs> That sort of thing is pretty good. And we're going to be getting two more books from Terrence Dudley that are actual Doctor Who stories. So trust me, they're slightly better than this and not as overwritten. But one of those is going to touch on those themes again. Come to think of it. Yeah, it really does. When we get to The Awakening, we're going to see some of these same themes brought out, but they're going to be better done because they have Doctor Who in them and they actually have a supernatural element to them. So it'll be a better experience. <laughs> Let's hope anyway. Jesus God, it couldn't be worse, could it? Oh, we've we've read worse. Oh, we have, but it's been a while. And I No, it was the story before last. The story before last? Keeper of Trocken. Oh God. We've read worse. I don't know that Keeper of Trocken is quite to the levels of bad that this is, but it, went, it was just over with quickly enough that your suffering was not as prolonged. I guess so. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I did have I to... I feel like this had more rewarding moments in it. It was just far too much of it. I feel like it could have been... could have whacked off 40% of it. That's true. Speaking of brisses again. As we always do... <laughs> Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, want to get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.17. 
which is much higher than I thought it would be. There were no reviews from our Goodreads group this time, but please keep them coming. <laughs> the boycott for the Goodreads group. Apparently so. Even Dave Davies didn't uh, send us anything this time. The normally sane Daniel Kukwa gives it four stars. <laughs> And says wow. the TV version may have bordered on cheesy curiosity, but without it, we would never have had the Sarah Jane adventures. That said, as with all his novelizations, Terrence Dudley performs a miracle, a Christmas miracle, even, and gives the story all the substance and style that was lacking on television. Only Eric Sayward's novelization of The Twin Dilemma outdoes this for sheer power of rehabilitation. I agree with them on that last one, but not in terms of this book. The Winter Solstice Miracle. I guess so. Travis also gives it four stars and says, Yes, it was a cheesy TV show, and the story is only slightly better, but it was a fun cheesy story. Sarah Jean Smith travels to her aunt's house in the country for some rest and ends up with a new dog, a young ward to look after, and a mystery to deal with as her aunt has disappeared and there are rumors of a witch's coven in the neighborhood, an old-fashioned mystery with some genuine suspenseful bits and two likable main characters. Well, two likable main characters stuck in a Scooby-Doo plot, I believe. But you feel sympathy for them. You want to give them a better novel, a better show. Of course I do, and they finally got one. Well, at least Sarah Jane did. And finally, Jason gives it one star and says, Ugh, this was a bore. Morbid curiosity is the only thing that kept me reading it. The story moved far too slowly, and Sarah Jane seemed out of character. She wept and cried in several places. Really? Sarah Jane crying? Apparently she has a black belt in karate. I don't remember seeing this in the show. I thought Sarah Jane was more of a tough mental character rather than an Angelina Jolie type. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I'll give this one a 2.5. I'll go down the middle. I don't, I don't know. There were some enjoyable moments between Brendan and K-9. Sarah's kind of inner monologue at times was interesting, but the story overall just, it's bleh. Again, like I said last time with Legopolis, I felt like a lot of it could have been edited down and it maybe would have felt a little tighter and a little more suspenseful if we didn't know everything that was going on constantly. I mean, we're told from the get-go who some of the members of the cult are so there's not a whole lot of tension in the story that could have a lot of tension and could be pretty fun, but it's just not. So, yeah, 2.5. Okay. And Allison? I'm going to go almost inside out and say I thought there was a little bit of fun and a little bit of tension from a story that was abominable. <laughs> but since the same person, if I understand this, created the original story and the script and the novelization, is that right? Yes. I mean, it's kind of weird... To, talk about him rescuing the story from himself yeah and that's what this whole thing does feel like it feels like someone has tried to rescue a worse story but it is the same story mm -hmm. i'm kind of having trouble rotating that in my mind i'm gonna go with 2.5 also and that positive is partly because i like the characterizations of the two leads and k9 is not one of them and i like the surprisingly accurate prediction of how technology would be used in the future. That actually made it feel interestingly modern in a way that I think is pretty impressive for this to be 1981 and 1987. That's hard to do. All right. And 
as for me, I have made it clear that I hate the story. <laughs> I don't understand why it was made to begin with. Actually, I do understand why it was made to begin with, but to have gone down such a terrible, terrible path, it's no wonder it didn't make it to series. That being said, this book is actually an improvement on the televised version. It's full of padding, but then the original story that would have been filmed as a 90-minute pilot would have been full of padding. So the fact that we have a 50-minute story that also feels full of padding probably is something of a godsend. It could have been far worse. This book does tell me just how bad it could have been, but it also tells me how good it could have been if it hadn't been chopped to ribbons. So, yeah, I'm conflicted, and I really don't want to have anything to do with Canine and Company ever again. So I think I'm going to go with the pack on this one and give it a 2.5 as well. Have we ever done that before? I don't think we have ever agreed on scores before. <laughs> it is a Christmas miracle. So we three, we happy three, we band of siblings, that I'm mixing metaphors there, but yes, all of us have given it a 2.5, which is probably more than it deserves, really. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. The holiday season makes one generous. I guess so. Yeah. Unless your holiday tradition involves child sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> Or a bris, indeed. Sorry. I keep going back to that. I don't know why. Actually, I know exactly why. Never mind. So, thank you all. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. My God, the uncomfortable silence there. Next time, <laughs> we pick up in February with the first adventure of the Fifth Doctor when we look at Christopher H. Bidney's novelization of Castrovalva. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in one of those spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetDC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Direction Point. Direction Point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.